Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman, Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm very pleased to introduce our guests for today's interview. Anne Kokus is the C.K. Yen Professor at the Miller Center and an Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Her research examines Sino-U.S. media and technology relations. She has received fellowships from the Library of Congress, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Mellon Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, and the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars, among others. Moderating the interview will be Sylvia Lintner. She is an associate professor at the University of Michigan School of Information and director of the Center for Ethics, Society, and Computing. She draws from more than 10 years of multi-site ethnographic research, examining China's shifting position in the global political economy of technology production, economic development, and science and technology policy. She is just back from a year in Shanghai. We are proud to note that both Anne and Sylvia are also members of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. With that, Sylvia, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Margot, for this lovely introduction. And it is such a pleasure to be in dialogue with Professor Kakas today about this really important and timely book, Trafficking Data. I think we all are familiar now with debates around the rising politics and geopolitics of artificial intelligence and data science. But very few people actually really know what this means with regards to policymaking, and how much of what is going on with regards to data science in the United States hinges on decision-making processes in China and vice versa. Professor Cox's book is examining exactly this tension and this entanglement between legal structures and technological structures in these two nations. So I want to begin this interview today with one of the most provocative arguments for me personally that this book is making. One of the early arguments and really sort of the framing for, for the book is your argument that China's conceptions of digital sovereignty can really only be understood if we examine closely historically and contemporary processes of American market-driven innovation with a specific focus on these shifts towards a data-driven market economy. So I wanted to ask you, Professor Cocker, to just unpack this particular process of entanglement that this book at its core really examines for us a little bit more. What is at stake in this transnational configuration of data markets? How did it happen that China, the United States, became become entangled in a global data market that really extends from earlier technologically driven governance processes, but also departs from them in important ways. So what is at the root of this? How did this happen that these two nations became entangled when it comes to contemporary processes of data governance? So thank you so much, Professor Lintner, for um, for being here and for, for asking that fantastic question. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this lineage, um, as well as the kind of contemporary moment we're in and what that means. 
So one of the things that we observed through the through the opening up of China's economy was this effort by the U.S. in the process of the multi-stakeholder governance process, which means that the United States advocated for the participation of corporations and civil society and um, and governments in making technical standards. Um, a great example of this is in the 1980s, the evolution of things like technical standards in the aviation industry, where the U.S. and U.S.-based companies had a large had a large stake and a large say in the development of technical standards, which then led to the shape, which then shaped the aviation industry from from that period um, and before, as well as as well as moving moving onward. Now, what we see is that the Chinese government became very aware of these processes, of the way in which the multi-stakeholder process, where U.S. companies would have an outsized role in shaping standards um, in conjunction with the U.S. government, would play in shaping digital or in shaping technical norms in a wide variety of industries. So this became really interesting with the evolution of digital, of digital platforms and of digital markets where it became very clear that um, U.S. firms like Google, like Amazon, like Facebook, were establishing patterns and practices through multi-stakeholder engagement with, um, with organizations that drew in the perspectives of industry, of, US, of the U.S. government, of civil society, that were not necessarily in the interest of company of countries like China that were much more focused on the role that the state was going to play in establishing these, these standards and norms. So in 2010, in 2010, with the introduction of the white paper on the internet in China, we see this establishment of an idea of internet sovereignty, where China asserts an idea that the internet is a, is a sovereign site. And from there, we see the growth and development of a wide range of different multilateral efforts by the Chinese government to assert technical standards. Now, the difference between multilateral and multi-stakeholder is key here, because in the context of a multilateral agreement, we see the state take much more take a much more important role um, and much less of a role by civil society and corporations. Now, in many ways, the United States had stacked the deck in its favor in order to establish technical standards in a wide range of industries using the multi-stakeholder model because they were able to draw on the power and interests of US companies, US civil society organizations, and the US government in order to push forth technical standards. Now, we see a very different context when we look at just the US government and just the, China and the Chinese government in a multilateral context like the United Nations, for example where independent, where individual countries can have outsized influence, um, where it's possible, for example, for the Chinese government to sway, um, to sway smaller nations or nations with similar governing systems to vote on a multilateral, to mul vote on multilateral standards. Now, what we see is that as this evolution happened from earlier tech industries through to digital, the digital landscape, the Chinese government has become more and more aware of the importance that this plays in not just establishing power domestically, not just establishing economic power globally, but establishing political hegemony globally. And I think what is so remarkable about your book is really that um, people haven't thought about 
per se, data-driven governance as a site of geopolitical tensions. We often mm -hmm. think of um, data structures and artificial intelligence uh, with regards to perhaps national borders. And, but even that has been a very recent debate, like just 10 years ago, very few people um, had on their minds things like an AI arms race, for instance, which is how the US and China often characterize these days through sort of a language of like a Cold War um, kind of mentality. And so we also, I think the book captures really well, um, what is at stake in this current moment as these two nations are competing over questions of national security, but also global reach as you were just unpacking. Um, so my second question is, is sort of very specific about the Chinese state and its conceptions um, about data. So there is um, the, the term that's, that's commonly used in Chinese, uh, is often translated, I think, into English as a digitization. Mm -hmm. But the term really connotes um, numerical processes, mm -hmm. right? And, and actually speaks uh, to the sort of focus um, on data-driven decision-making processes um, that have drastically shifted over the last four years how the Chinese state approaches various industries and thinks about transforming um, um, any, and you describe it in the book, anything from health over citizen engagement uh, to agriculture and everything in between. So I'm curious uh, to hear from you a little bit to explain to our listeners um, how does this conception of data-driven governance or digitization of Shu Zihua in the sort of Chinese state context, how does that differ from how um, American tech corporations and perhaps even the American government, government has conceptualized data? What is the key difference there? Well, I think that there are many key differences. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why writing this book was so exciting to really see how differently country countries conceive of these issues and as we're looking at you know an ai arms race or even just intense in competition economically in the digital realm how these different conceptions of what the digital is relative to how a society functions how companies operate how sovereignty works are so different in the united states and china and i think this is one of the amazing things that the national committee does is to bring these ideas into dialogue. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have the chance to talk about this. Um, now, I think that we need to think about the relationship between Xu Zhuhua and Xu Zihua and Xu Zhuquan. So the digitization uh, is one thing. So that's turning a society into a digital, into a site of the usage of digital types of digital platforms. Um, and then, uh, is this idea of a sort of digital sovereignty. It's also, um, they're also the idea of, there's also the idea of um, so like a, a network sovereignty. Uh, and these are key distinction. These are key distinct terms. The reason why they're different is because um, could just refer to um, the use of digital tools to make a society function more efficiently. So for example, in the course of researching the book, I visited the Pudong District um, administrative building that was designed to be a municipally led smart city initiative to improve uh, a wide range of different municipal services. And that's 
really handy. I mean, I as mm-hmm. in the United States, I would love it if there were if there were more enhanced, you know, traffic management mechanisms that were in place to help me not get stuck in traffic or flood management in in places like Florida that was that was based on, you know, effective predictive mechanisms. So that's that's one municipal or or civic management strategy. Uh, And the part that becomes complicated is when those civic or municipal or even national management strategies become part of this idea of what constitutes a sovereign state. And then what becomes even more complicated on top of that is the very broad way in which China conceptualizes what the digital domain of the Chinese state is. And what we've seen through China's data security law, through the Hong Kong national security law, um, through the 2017 cybersecurity law, is that this idea of what constitutes the digital domain of China um, can be very expansive and can include the data of Chinese nationals abroad, of companies that operate in China, of any Chinese company anywhere that they're potentially operating. And these aren't necessarily clearly defined domains, uh, but the way that the laws are written at this point means that all of these things could be included. Um, The external operations of companies that are operating in China or in Hong Kong or in the PRC or in Hong Kong um, can also be included. So these are very complicated dynamics. Now, in contrast, in the United States, we have none of this. Uh, there is an effort right now in Congress to pass a very minimal data privacy regulation that um, called the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which looks very much like it will not pass prior to the midterm elections. Um, and then we will likely have a different Congress and it more than likely will not pass then. So in the United States, we don't really have a, a national conception of what data privacy is, of what a digital domain constitutes, And a lot of this has been the result of a very useful agreement that has been made tacitly between Washington and Silicon Valley that with a lot of autonomy, Silicon Valley firms are able to grow, um, be minimally taxed, minimally regulated, but they expand U.S. national power in these really substantial ways. But at this point, these are now global corporations that are in some cases have a you know domicile in Ireland or in the Cayman Islands, uh, and their interests are not really aligned with with U.S. government interests. So instead, there are these massive corporations that are located in the United States that the U.S. government, through you know very mild oversight, has allowed to grow. And now they're very difficult to 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 regulate, even though there's a lot of will and a lot of interest through organizations like the. Federal Trade Commission um, or through the you know, Biden administration has been issuing executive orders. These are, these are much smaller in scale than China's entire conception of uh, you know, digital or, or, um, or network sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you have actually a really wonderful term to describe some of these dynamics in the book. You're drawing on the Black Studies scholar Simon Brown to develop this notion of a national data corpus to speak Hmm. to China's uh, comprehensive approach to actually managing technological processes and also managing the relationship between the state and and data gathering and data analytics and and data companies. 
And I th for me, the, the concept is really powerful because you use it to demonstrate also how data-driven governance renders not only the individual body, which was sort of a focus that's, that Simon Brown had, not only rendering the individual body, but rendering the whole population biometric. Um, so it's a really provocative, important concept, I think. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more, what does it entail to make the nation, its people and its resources legible through data? I mean, this is, this is sort of what the concept is getting at, right? So could you unpack a little bit more for us? What does that entail? How is that done? Um, how exactly does it work and what are the consequences of that? Well, I'm so glad that you brought this up. The thinking through the idea of the data corpus was was really um, was something that really draw drew the book together as I was trying to think about the differences between China and the United States and how differently the Chinese government conceives of the way that citizens interact with their data and the way that the government interacts with citizen data. Um, and so I, I use the term data corpus to, to draw on a lot of different ideas. So there's the so there's Simone Brown's conception of the the individual body. Um, the idea of a corpus also draws from the idea of a corporation. So a lot of this data is corporatized or mod or modulated or gathered through engagements with corporations. Um, we also have the idea that a corpus is used a data corpus is used to train AI models. So in addition to the body, we also have this training mechanism that, that the bodies, the collective bodies of the Chinese people are then being used to develop um, through a wide range of different economic tools of civic management school tools, potentially even um, political or, or um, tools related to national security. Now, when this becomes really interesting is during a time like COVID, uh, which you had much more experience with the dynamic zero COVID experience than I did, um, having just come back from China, where when I when I first started writing the book, COVID was not around yet. Uh, it was not part of our lives. And as this as this evolved, the idea of the data corpus became even more significant and mm -hmm. even more um, upfront about as part of the Chinese experience through things like um, like health codes and health apps that shape how people can move that even more intensively monitor their biometrics, their ability to participate in society, whether or not they'll be placed into quarantine um, and basically how their lives function. So when I began writing the book, I couldn't even conceive of the degree to which a lot of these, a lot of these plans would have been when put into place. And indeed, when I was doing field research in China, prior to COVID starting, um, it became clear that while this was an intention of the Chinese government, there were a lot of technical challenges to implementing that type of biosurveillance bio and that, that type of widespread surveillance. Right. And in many ways, something like dynamic zero COVID and the, um, and the evolution of health codes has really expedited the development of this national data corpus literally through the monitoring of people's bodies for disease. I'm really glad you went there because my next question would have been to ask you about uh, what role COVID played in the adoption of these data-driven governance processes and 
is it an acceleration, which you just mentioned, right? It accelerated some of these, these processes and legitimized them in new ways. And, and also really, I think, allowed for kind of experimentation. My experience in Shanghai during the, the early lockdown was really that these technologies were constantly shifting and being experimented with, and they will, they're probably going to stay beyond the dynamic serial COVID strategies and will will shape city governance processes for a long time to come. Which maybe brings me then to my next question. So I was, I was very curious um, to hear from you. Um, over the last several years, there have been ongoing debates in this interdisciplinary field of data science, critical data studies, around the claim that machine learning and data-driven processes can achieve complete accuracy. So there's a, there's a debate over, is it even possible to completely map a society or to completely map um, citizen processes through data? So some people uh, and some tech companies would argue yes, and that's the very promise of data science and machine learning. And there's also a critical contingency of people who say, actually, it's not fully possible in the first place. So um, as you know, I was traveling in, in China in the Southwest recently. And so I revisited the anthropologist James Scott work on the art of not being governed and had to think a lot about the reach of the state and the reach of data governance all the way into the Southwest of China. And so rereading James Scott work, uh, I was pondering this question, is, is there something that still escapes the reach of the state in this contemporary moment of data trafficking that includes also quite violent processes in terms of like who is managed through processes of data. So I kind of wanted to ask a sort of a little bit more speculative open-end question. What is your take on if there is this a, is this a fully completed process? Is, is data governance in China something that has reached the last corners of Chinese society or is there still things or regions or places that escape the reach of the data-driven state? Yeah, I think that this is a this is a great question. I think it's a really important thing to to remember as we're talking about these larger policy frameworks and you know efforts by governments to expand their oversight and their sovereignty. And it is it is always a necessarily incomplete process. Even even as we see the expansion of rapid um, rapid oversight through health codes and through you know the widespread adoption of apps that have a wide range of surveillance tools like WeChat um, throughout China. There are also misfires and things that don't work and cameras that aren't replaced and, <laughs> uh, and places where the service is not, is not good yet or might never be good or where there's local government non-compliance or where there just isn't sufficient infrastructure or infrastructural need or interest to, to build those systems. Uh, I think that we are seeing there are certain places that are highly surveilled. So places like like Xinjiang or other minority regions where there's concern about political dissent. There are also places where there's a high level of economic development and technical development um, like Shenzhen or Shanghai, um, places like Beijing, which have both a high level of political sensitivity and a high level of economic development have even more intensive surveillance systems in place. Um, but then there are places in between that might, you know, be rural, but not necessarily contentious. Uh, and places where there isn't a, a necessarily a significant focus on the development of specific agricultural resources or 
different um, different infrastructural tools that might get overlooked. Um, and I think that that's something that we need to acknowledge and accept throughout all of these processes. Anywhere that we go, actually, there are diff we experience different levels of surveillance um, through our technical systems. And then I think not just geographically, but also generationally, people who are older use tools, technical tools differently than people who are younger. Um, people who are more technically savvy use tools more different, uh, use tools differently, people in different industries. So I think that we can't necessarily say that there's a, a blanket data oversight system, um, but I think that we can, through reading Chinese government policy documents, see that there's a, a very clear intention toward building a digitized society that can be monitored domestically and also extraterritorially. Yeah, indeed. And and so I'm curious to, to talk with you a little bit about, have you um, sort of seen in throughout the research for this book, um, different forms of um, pushback by, by entities, perhaps both state-driven or citizen-driven um, that might challenge the state's reach. So one of the things I was concretely thinking about and experiencing in China was actually during the Shanghai lockdown, right, where people increasingly expressed dissatisfaction with China's zero COVID policies, um, and also with actually the data-driven approach to zero COVID. People made fun of it and, and, and sort of challenged the government. Have you come across um, pushback like that throughout the research of, for this book? No, and I think that that's a really, that's a really important point. So in addition to commercial or government infrastructure that may not have been fully built out. There's also the fact that this rapid uptake of digital oversight and surveillance is something that is also deeply alienating to large numbers of people who, while maybe in the beginning, benefited very clearly from greater mobility. And, you know, this was, I, I remember we talked about uh, you going to Shanghai uh, when you first got there and feeling this kind of increased freedom of, of being able to travel and knowing if people were infected, which we did not know in the US. And we just get to experience the freedom of wondering if we're going to get COVID from anyone that we talk to at any given moment. Um, good news, good news, bad news on that. But, uh, mm -hmm. but I think that it becomes really interesting when these technologies are taken up so quickly that there is this concern about them, um, especially when they're associated with things like massive lockdowns or the limitation of movement that to people who are accustomed to otherwise having very relatively free movement around in their lives, a lot of autonomy, um, people who are benefiting from the spoils of China's rapid economic growth, seeing their, their lives limited. So I think it, it makes sense that there, that there would be pushback. And this is why it's, it's really interesting to look at the potential future of the dynamic zero COVID policy, because um, even among Chinese government officials that I've spoken with, there's some uh, disappointment and frustration with the dynamic zero COVID policy because it limits their movement as well. Uh, and so there are limits to how much people will take. I think that we've even seen from government officials a certain amount of frustration with respect to how long this dynamic zero code policy has gone on um, and how limiting it is for their travel as well. And so we'll see um, how things how things proceed over the coming months. 
And thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I have so many more questions, but I will reserve them for my students in class because I will be assigning this book to both my PhD <laughs> level classes and the undergrad level. And I can't wait to have conversations with them about this very timely and, and you know, path-breaking book. So thank you so much for writing it, for bursting it out there in the world. And yeah, I look forward to many more conversations about it. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm so grateful, and I have to say that um, that as the as the author of I'm very honored to have the author of Prototype Nation be the <laughs> godmother of trafficking data. So, um, <laughs> so you've you've helped me so much in um, in building this book and working through all this all these ideas, and I feel really honored to have the chance to talk with you, and and very honored that you'd be share, willing to share it with your students. So well, it's been an honor to follow the journey. <laughs> Thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. I look forward to the continuing conversation about how all of this is going to affect US-China relations because neither country is operating in a vacuum. And I think that this has profound implications for both countries and for the rest of the world. With that, I'd also like to thank my colleagues at the National Committee who've been working behind the scenes to make today's interview possible. We hope that those who've tuned in today found the interview both interesting and informative, and that you will join us again for future National Committee programming. Thank you all again. Goodbye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.